have questions. Questions like, why is it called a building if it's already built? Why is there no egg in eggplant? And do penguins have knees? But some questions are more important than others. We gave a survey to find your most asked questions. Every week, we're gonna answer your most asked questions and discover God's best plan, because you asked for it. Okay, so I wanna begin this morning with a fact, and here's the fact. Everyone, everyone believes in truth. Regardless of who we are, regardless of how we live, regardless of what we believe, we have some source of truth in our lives. Those who believe in God, those who don't believe in God, everyone has a source of truth. And so the question we have is this, how do we determine truth? Does popular opinion determine truth? Our culture, what our culture says at a given time, does that determine truth? Does my upbringing, my background, the traditions that I grew up with, does that determine truth? Does my intellect, my ability to reason, to think things out, does that determine truth? Now here's another question for you. Are all beliefs equally true? In other words, if it's true for you, does that make it okay? It can be true for you, but not true for me, but it can be truth. Can that even be true? Uh, another question we have to ask is this. Does the intensity of our beliefs help ensure our truth? In other words, if I really believe something, I believe it with all my heart, I believe it with passion, does that make it more true? Now today's question has to do with truth. What is truth? How do we determine truth? Now for those of us who believe in God, those of us who really believe in God, we would say that God is the source of truth. God is the source of all truth. Regardless of what we believe about God, regardless of what our religious background may be, we may be Jewish, we may be Hindu, we may be Muslim, we may be Christian, but if we believe in God, we would say that God is the source of truth in our life. And most of us who believe in God believe that God speaks to us through a book. In other words, there is a book that God has given to man that speaks truth into our life. Now, for those of us who are Christians, those of us who follow Jesus, who believe in Jesus, we would say that that book is the Bible. We would say that the Bible is truth. We don't say that it contains truth. We say that it is truth. You see, we don't believe that the Bible is simply man's opinion about God. We believe that the Bible is God's Word. It is completely true. It is completely trustworthy. One of the things that we say about the Bible is this. We believe the Bible is truth without any mixture of error. And so we would say that we believe the Bible is true from Genesis to Revelation. So whatever it says in the book, the Bible, we would say that is true. Jesus said it this way in John 17. He said, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And so Jesus, when he walked here on this earth, says 
there is a word that comes from God. We call it the Scriptures, and the Scripture is truth. The Apostle Paul said it like this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. He said, all Scripture is inspired by God. That phrase, inspired by God, is one compound word in Greek, which means God breathed. In other words, Paul is saying that the Scripture, the Bible, the Word of God is the very breath of God, it comes out of the very mouth of God. In other words, what Paul is saying here is when we read the Bible, it is as if God is sitting down in front of us talking to us. It's God's word to us. So the question we have to answer is this, can I Believe what the Bible says is true. And I think there is a follow-up question. And the follow-up question is this. Can I prove what the Bible says is true? And the answer is yes and no. Can I prove what the Bible says is true? Well, yes, I can. But no, I can't. You see, there are some things scientifically historically, archaeologically, that the Bible says that I can prove beyond a shadow of a doubt, it is true. For instance, there are people today that walk among us who really don't believe that Jesus was an actual person. They say Jesus was a myth. He was a mythological person, kind of like King Arthur. Now, can I just say to you, that's stupid. It's stupid. I can prove to you historically that Jesus was a real person. He grew up and lived in the area of Galilee. And he died on a cross in Palestine. I can prove that historically. But at the same time, there are other things that the Bible teaches that I can't prove. I believe that I can give ample evidence to you that I think should convince you. It certainly has convinced me, but I can't prove it scientifically to you. I, I may be able to argue it in a court of law and convince a jury, but I can't prove it scientifically, for instance. I can't prove that Jesus rose from the grave. I can prove that he lived. I can prove that he died. But I can't prove that he rose from the grave. There's evidence. I believe there's ample evidence to make that case. But I can't prove it. And yet you need to understand in the same way there are things that non-believers believe is true that they can't prove. You see, the truth of the matter is we all, regardless of our spiritual background, we all operate by faith. Let, let me give you an example. If you go to a, a public school and you take science classes, which you will, there is a good chance that your science teacher will tell you that evolution 
is a fact. It is a proven fact. The problem with that is, it's not true. Evolution isn't a proven fact. We call it the what? The theory of evolution. The reason we call it the theory of evolution is because it can't be proved. Now, could it be correct? Maybe. Could it be true? Possibly. But here's the deal. You can't prove it. And so for you to sit back and try to force me to believe it is true, that it is fact, when nothing in science can prove it, you're believing it by faith. Just like I'm believing that Jesus rose from the grave by faith. And so understand when it comes to the Bible, there are things that I can prove are true and there are things that I can't prove are true. So the question we have to ask is this, is there ample evidence to convince a thinking person with an open mind that the Bible is true? And that's the question we're going to try to answer this morning. Is there ample evidence to convince a thinking person with an open mind that the Bible is true. And to answer that question, we're going to answer two questions. First of all, where did we get our Bible from? I mean, if we're going to answer this question about whether the Bible is true, we need to determine where it comes from. Now, the simple Christian answer would be, well, the Bible comes from God. It's inspired. It's the very breath of God. It's the Word of God. And that's true from a spiritual perspective. We believe that. But from a human perspective, where does the Bible come from? Here's a question that was turned in with our You Ask for It. Uh, someone said this. I've heard of such books as the book of Enoch and the gospel of Thomas. And I've actually Googled them. And what I've read seems to be kind of weird. So I've often wondered how, why such books as these were discarded. And why our current Bible books were kept. Now that's a really good question. I mean, why are there some books out there, and there are some books that we say aren't part of the Bible, and there are other books, 66 books, that we say are? How did we get those 66 books? In 2003, Dan Brown wrote a book called The Da Vinci Code. It became a worldwide bestseller. A movie was made of the book starring Tom Hanks. The book, or the movie, flopped. I mean, I enjoyed it. It was an enjoyable movie to watch if you enjoy action and you enjoy those kind of things. But Dan Brown wrote this book trying to convince people that what he was saying was true. And what's crazy is many people believed what he wrote in this book, The Da Vinci Code, what he said on Good Morning America and other talk shows was actually true. Now, this is what he said about the Bible. He said, the Bible did not arrive by facts from heaven. Well, we know that. God is beyond a facts machine. I mean, we don't even use facts anymore, right? <laughs> so the Bible didn't arrive by facts from heaven. The Bible is a product of man, not of God, huh? Man created it as a historical record of tumultuous times, and it has evolved through countless translations of ditches and revisions. What? 
History has never had a definitive version of the book. Dan Brown said there has never been a, a Bible that history says this is the Bible that is agreed upon by all people. Is that true? He went on to say this, more than 80 Gospels were considered for the New Testament, yet only a relative few were chosen for inclusion. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John among them. Were there 80 that were considered? Really? And then he said this, the fundamental irony of Christianity, the Bible as we know it was collated by the pagan Roman Emperor Constantine. Constantine commissioned and financed a new Bible which omitted those Gospels that spoke of Christ's human traits and embellished those Gospels that made him godlike. The earlier Gospels were outlawed, gathered up, and burned. Now, wow. If what he is saying is true, that really does change everything, doesn't it? I mean, if, if, there was a Bible that was burned and destroyed and Constantine replaced it with what we have now to, to kind of maintain the agenda that he wanted, then that changes things. Well, I'm here to tell you that part of what he said is true. There are other books out there. Uh, for instance, there are 15 books of the Apocrypha. There, there, there are some Bibles today even that between the Old Testament and the New Testament you'll see the Apocrypha. And there are 12 of those books, Apocrypha books in there. So you have the books of the Apocrypha. You also have these Gnostic Gospels. The, the Gospel of Thomas. The Gospel of the Infancy of Jesus. The Gospel of Judas. There's all kind of Gospels out there. And, and we'll speak to those in a few minutes, okay? But there's a reason that those were never considered a part of the Word of God. And so, how did we get our Bible? Well, first of all, our Old Testament. That's easy. The Old Testament, as we know it, the 39 books of the Old Testament were considered Scripture by Jews as early as 256 B.C. That's 256 years before Jesus was born. The Jewish people believed the 39 books that we call the Old Testament were the Word of God. There was never really a question about that. In 256, that's when the Jewish Old Testament, the Hebrew Old Testament, was translated into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. And so by 256, the Old Testament wasn't in doubt. When Jesus walked on earth and he talked about the Scriptures, he was talking about that Old Testament, those 39 books. Sometimes they're referred to as the law, the writings, and the prophets. Those 39 books. That's what Jesus believed was Scripture. That's what Jesus quoted as Scripture. In 90 AD, there was a council called the Council of Jomnia where they ratified those 39 books as the books of the Old Testament. And those 39 books have never been in question. So that's the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? How did we get our New Testament? Well, after Jesus walked on this earth and did the miracles that he did, he died and, 
And then over 500 people saw him and said he rose from the dead and began to share that with people. People began to write accounts of his life. You can imagine that, wouldn't you? I mean, if there was this man that was called the Son of God, there was this man that raised people from the dead, there was this man that, that healed the sick and fed the multitude with just some fish and some loaves, there was this man who was nailed to a cross that his disciples said came back to life, you would imagine people would start writing stories about him. And so shortly after Jesus died, they started writing accounts of Jesus' life. And one of the people that wrote an account was Luke. Matthew, Mark, Luke. This is what Luke says in Luke chapter 1. He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore... Since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. And so Luke said, I think it's important to write down all these things that Jesus said and did so as you are investigating and studying the facts, you can have some verified facts to rely on. Now, some of the books, like the book of Luke that was written, were verified and accepted by believers all over as truth. At the same time, there were other books that were written that were never seen as truth. They were seen as forgeries, some of them. Others were seen as fabrications. You see, for a book to be considered truth, to be inspired by God, to be part of what we call the canon those authorized books of the Bible, they had to meet certain criteria that the church had agreed upon. First of all, it had to be written close to the time of Jesus. And so if the book was written hundreds of years after Jesus lived, then it wouldn't even be, be counted. It wouldn't even be looked at. It had to be written within a certain time frame of when Jesus lived. Second, it had to be written by an apostle or someone who was a close associate of an apostle. Now, an apostle was someone who was an eyewitness of Jesus. Someone who was a close associate of an apostle would have been like Mark, who was a close associate of Peter. Luke, who was a close associate of Paul. And so you had apostles who saw Jesus, who lived with Jesus, who walked with Jesus. They wrote the books. And then you had others who were close associates of Jesus. Third, the writing had to be accepted by churches throughout the known world. In other words, the, the, the book couldn't just be accepted by one group that lived here or another group that lived here. It had to be accepted by the church universal. And then finally, the writings had to be, um, had to be um, brought together um, as one so that no group, individual group, could corrupt what the Bible said. And so by the end of the first century, by the end of the first century, one generation removed from the death of Jesus, when many of the apostles were still alive, we had 20 of the 27 books of the New Testament that were already confirmed to be sacred. 20 of the 27. Those 20 books 
contain everything we need today to live a Christian life. Every essential doctrine that we believe is contained in those 20 books. And so if we never had any more, those 20 books would give us the New Testament that would tell us what we need today. In the second century, there was this heretic named Marcion who was excommunicated from the church by his daddy. Now you know you got to be bad if your daddy excommunicates you. He was this bishop and he was living in adultery. He was a sinful man and his dad kicked him out of the church. And when he was kicked out of the church, he took the Bible and he began to rewrite it. Anything that had to do with any of the lifestyle choices that Marcion was living, he would take them out. It sounds kind of like many people today, doesn't it? You know, many people today will say, well, that's not really true anymore. That's what people do. And so because of Marcion, the church knew that they had to codify this canon. They had to come together and have this list of books that everyone agreed, this is Scripture. This is the Word of God. And so the very first, listen, this is crazy. The very first incident we have of this came from 197 A.D. Just uh, less, less than 100 years after the apostles had died. It's called the Muratorian Canon. The Muratorian Canon contained 23 of the 27 books that are in our New Testament today. Every book other than Hebrews, James, and First and Second Peter. So by 197 A.D., there were 23 books that every single Christian agreed, this is sacred. In 303 A.D., um, Diocletian was the emperor of Rome. And he instituted a persecution of the church that was unlike any other before or any other after. Christians were being put to death. And Diocletian issued an edict that every Bible would be burned. Now, I say that to say to you, if Diocletian, this pagan emperor, issued a decree that every Bible be burned, then there had to be what? Bibles. There had to be books that the church agreed was Scripture. That was ratified at a church council in 397. Now I say that to say to you that by 397 A.D., no one who was a part of the church, the body of Christ, has ever doubted the 27 books of the New Testament were God's word. Now, and you say, so Rocky, are you saying that the church agreed that these books were the word of God and therefore they became the word of God? And that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that these churches agreed that this was the word of God because it was the word of God. Let me tell you what F.F. Bruce said. One of the premier scholars on, on where we get our Bible. F.F. Bruce said this. One thing must be emphatically stated. The New Testament books did not become authoritative for the church because they were formally included in a canonical list. On the contrary, the church included them in her canon 
because she already regarded them as divinely inspired, recognizing their innate worth and generally apostolic authority, direct or indirect. What these councils did was not to impose something new upon the Christian communities, but to codify what was already the general practice of those communities. In other words, what F.F. Bruce is saying there is the canon did not make these books scripture. The canon only verified what the early church was already practicing. These are the books of scripture. Someone else said it like this. They said it is crucial to remember that the church did not determine the canon. No early church council decided on the canon. It was God and God alone who determined which books belonged in the Bible. It was simply a matter of God's imparting to his followers what he had already decided. The human process of collecting the books of the Bible was flawed. But God in his sovereignty and despite our ignorance and stubbornness brought the early church to the recognition of the books he had inspired. So in other words, just as God used flawed individuals to give us a perfect book, God used flawed individuals to give us the books he wanted. And so God used imperfect people to give us a perfect book that is composed of 66 different books. So that's how we got our Bible. So how can I believe that the Bible is true? Well, according to the timer, I've got five minutes. And what I'm going to say is going to take longer than five minutes, but I do have to cut some things for time. And so I'm going to give you four things that I believe verify for me why the Bible is true. And I want you to look at me. If you are a cynic, if you're a skeptic, if you're a doubter or you're a questioner, I challenge you today to look with an open mind and an open heart at what I'm about to say. Examine the evidence for yourself. Don't let some stupid person on Google determine what you believe. Have the brain power to research for yourself and determine what is true. So four things that that in my mind convinced me that the Bible is indeed the Word of God. First of all, it is historically verified. For years, the historical truth of the Bible has come under attack. It has been criticized. It has been dissected by so-called intellectuals. But every time the Bible has been criticized as being historically inaccurate, History has come back to prove that what the Bible said was true. Now let me say that again. The Bible has been attacked historically for hundreds of years. But every time it has been attacked by historians, the historians have had to come back and apologize because historical evidence has proven that what the Bible says is true. Let me, give you, let me give you a couple of examples. First of all, the Hittite civilization. Historians for centuries said that the Bible cannot be true because in the time of Abraham, it speaks of a Hittite people and history confirms that there were no such people as the Hittite people until 
until archaeologists found writings from a Hittite civilization. And the historians had to come back and say, oops, we were wrong. Then historians said that the Bible was wrong on the Philistine people. There is no historical evidence that the Philistine people as a people group ever existed, even though the Bible talks about them being the, the greatest metal workers of their day, and because of that, they had a monopoly on swords and spears and all of those things. See, this proves that the Bible isn't true because nowhere in history is there any evidence apart from what the Bible says about Philistine people. And then archaeologists found historical evidence of the Philistines. And they not only found historical evidence of the Philistine people, they found writings that agreed with what the Old Testament says in the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel. That the Philistines were great metal workers who were able, because of their skill in metal work, to have a monopoly on making weapons. Again, history had to say, oops, we were wrong. For years, historians said Sodom and Gomorrah were not real cities. And so the story of God destroying Sodom and Gomorrah was just a myth. It didn't ha actually happen until, get this, archaeologists found the remains of Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm here to tell you that every time historians question the Word of God historically, the Word of God is verified as history catches up with the Bible. The Bible is historically verified. Second, the Bible is scientifically and prophetically accurate. Science has never come up with one single truth that contradicts what the Bible says. Now understand, the Bible isn't a science book. The Bible wasn't written to teach you science. But where the Bible speaks scientifically, it is true. For instance, for years people would say that there is no way that a flood covered the entire world. But did you know that they have found the fossil remains of sea life in the highest mountain chains of the world? How did they get there? Years ago, my family were touring at the Grand Canyon, and our tour guide stopped, and he said, there was a time in history, hundreds of thousands of years ago, that this entire canyon was under water. I wanted to raise my hand and say, I knew that. I knew that. Science catching up with the Bible. Did you know the Bible said that the earth was round 1,600 years before man figured it out? I mean, we thought it was flat, and yet the Bible said in Isaiah 40, that the earth was round. Did you know the Bible says that the earth is suspended in space 3,600 years before man figured it out in Job 26, verse 7? Hindus said that the earth was supported on the back of a giant elephant who was standing on the back of a tortoise. 
The Greeks believed that the earth was suspended on the shoulders of Atlas. And here's the Bible that said, that's silly. The earth is suspended in space. Did you know the Bible said that it is blood that sustains life in Leviticus 17 verse 11? Long before medical science ever discovered that. You see, science has never discredited the Word of God. What about prophecy? We're not going to have time to get into the prophecy. If you want me to email you some things, you can email me. I'll email it to you. But let me tell you, there are hundreds upon hundreds of prophecies in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that have been fulfilled that are nothing short of miracles. I mean, how could hundreds of prophecies be fulfilled? I mean, when we talk about the prophecies that are written in the Old Testament about one man, Jesus, and how this one man fulfilled all of those prophecies to a T, that's a miracle in and of itself. Scientifically, prophetically accurate. The Bible is thematically unified. Did you know the Bible is one book, which is a compilation of 66 books, 66 individual books make up the book, the Bible. It's written over a period of 1,500 years from the first one written to the last one. It's written by 35 different individuals. It is written from three different continents. It is written in three different languages. And yet this book that is written over 1,500 years by 35 different people, have one common theme. And that one common theme is to introduce us to Jesus. This is what it says in John chapter 5, while Jesus, shortly after Jesus' ministry, it says, you have your heads in your Bibles constantly because you think you'll find eternal life there, but you miss the forest for the trees. These scriptures are all about me. Jesus told the Pharisees, you're reading this scripture because you think you're going to find answers, and you will find answers. But this scripture, the Old Testament, it's pointing to me. That's what Jesus said. In John 20, verse 31, it says, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Again, the Bible that it's talking about is the Old Testament. John is saying at the end of the Gospel of John that this book is written and all of these books are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's the theme from beginning to end. And there are no contradictions. And people will sit back and say, well, the Bible is filled with contradictions. No, it is not. People that say that are spouting their ignorance. Are there some difficult passages in Scripture that you need to study and research and figure out? There's a handful of them, just a handful. But there are no contradictions. And that in itself is a miracle, isn't it? I mean, think for just a second. Think for just a second. National championship game, Alabama-Clemson. And we bring 30 people together and... Ten of them are Alabama fans, diehard Alabama fans. 
Ten are Clemson fans, diehard Clemson fans. And ten of them are Carolina fans who hate Clemson. (laughs) And you say, okay, the 30 of you are going to watch this game from start to finish. And then you are going to give me a play-by-play analysis. You're going to write it out, this game, for me. 30 people. 10 Clemson fans, 10 Alabama fans, 10 Carolina fans writing about a game that just happened that they just saw. Do you think they're going to agree on what happened? No! I mean, you get those 30 people together and they're not going to see it the same way. And yet, here's the Bible. 66 different books written by 35 different people over 1,500 years that agree in every detail. That is a miracle. Systematically unified. But there's another thing that's more important than all. And that is this. The Bible is personally life-changing. It's life-changing. I mean, look at the people in the Word of God who were willing to die cruel deaths because they believed what it said was true. They said, we've seen it with our own eyes. We have touched him with our own hands. He is the Word of God, Jesus. We're willing to die believing that. The Word of God changed their lives. And can I tell you, look at me, look at me. The Word of God has changed my life. I am who I am today because of the power of the Word of God to convict me of my sin and bring me to a state of repentance and faith. The Word of God changed my life. And the Word of God has been changing lives for thousands of years. G.K. Chesterton was an intellect of the last century and a very godly man, a strong Christian. And John Ortberg writes about him in one of his books, and he he says that one day G.K. Chesterton was, was asked a question, that if you were stranded on a desert island, what book would you want? If you could have any book, what book would you want? And they thought it was a loaded question, and certainly this, this godly man would say, well, I want the Bible. That's not what he said. G.K. Chesterton, this godly Christian man, said, well, if I was stranded on a desert island, I would want Thomas Guide to practical shipbuilding. (laughs) Pretty good answer, isn't it? I mean, if I'm stuck on a desert island, I want to know how to build a boat so I can get off the island, right? And in reality, is that not where each and every one of us are? I mean, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey this morning, you know, you know deep inside that there's something more in this life than what you've got right now. Something's missing. The Bible says God has set eternity in the hearts of all people. In other words, there's something more, and I'm trying to figure it out. And so we spend our lives trying to figure it out. Maybe it's a relationship I need. Maybe it's discovering my sexual identity. Maybe it's striking it rich. Maybe it's, and we fill in the blanks and we think that if somehow, some way, we can fill in the blanks and this hole in our heart is going to be filled. And it's not. 
And the reason is the only thing that's going to fill the hole and get us off the island is Jesus. And the Bible, God's book, is written for one purpose. To point us to Jesus. Does it give us historical truth? Yes. Does it give us scientific fact? Yes. Does it give us great philosophical insight? Sure it does. But the Bible was written to point us to Jesus. Who alone can fill the hole in our heart. And I'm so thankful that when I was young enough to respond in humility, God convicted me. And I turned from sin and trusted Jesus. And I've never looked back. And it's his book, the Bible, that showed me how. So what about it? Do you know Jesus? If you don't, that's the most important thing that you need to do today. You don't need to think about it. You don't need to pray about it. You need to do it. You need to humble yourself before God. Acknowledge you aren't the God of all creation. You don't know everything. You need help and give yourself to Him. And He'll hear you. He'll save you. And if you're here and you're not ready to do that, then I'm here to tell you what you need to do. You need to quit acting like you're so stinking smart because you're not if you're not into the Word. Look at me. If, you, if you're not a believer here today and you're saying, well, I don't believe that stuff, and you're not taking time to read the Bible systematically, you are stupid. You're stupid. You can call me mean-spirited all you want. No, I love you. I don't want you to be stupid. I, I want you to recognize that if you really want to know truth, you're going to at least examine whether this is truth or not. And you'll never know unless you take the time to read it for yourself. And if you do with an open mind and an open heart saying, God, if you're real, reveal yourself to me, I'm here convinced that he will. So start. Take 15 minutes a day. Start with the book of Matthew and just start reading through the New Testament. Say, God, if you're real, show yourself to me. See what he does. If you're really as smart as you think you are, then you will take the time to do that if you don't know Jesus. You say, well, what translation do I read? There's all kinds of translations. It doesn't matter. Get one you can understand. I mean, you know, some people say, well, the King James, it's the only accurate translation. People that say that are filled with arrogance and foolishness. The King James was translated in 1611. And the only difference between the King James and translations today is some of them were translated in 1980. Some were translated in whatever. And the King James was translated in 1611. I don't know about you, but I didn't do well in Elizabethan English. I didn't like it. Let me ask you a question. How many of you enjoyed Elizabethan English if you ever took it? If you're raising your hand, it's because you're an English teacher. <laughs> I mean, I sat back and went, Dear Jesus, please get me out of this class. 
mean, it's just tough understanding. And that's how it was when I was reading my King James Bible as a kid. And then my kids bought me this, this paraphrase of the Bible called The Way. It was the living translation. And I started reading it. And, and as a kid, I read through the Bible in a year because I could understand it. And it was transforming me. Get a translation you can understand. Start reading it. If you're a believer and you're not reading the Bible, stop it. Start reading the Word. It's how God speaks to us today. You can sit on your high horse and say, God speaks to me through dreams and visions. I'm here to tell you, look at me, look at me. If you're not into the Word passionately and purposefully, and you're having dreams and visions, it's not from God. I mean, unless you're in some closed country where there are no Bibles. Read the Bible. So what is it you need to do today? You need to give your life to Jesus. You need to start, a, start an honest pursuit. Saying, God, if you're real, speak to me. Or do you need to start reading it because you're already a follower and you haven't been doing it like you should? Wherever you're at, take the step. I want you to bow your head with me and close your eyes. With your head bowed and your eyes closed, if you're here and you're saying, Rocky, I know I need to give my life to Jesus. I know that. I, he's convicted me and I've rejected him. And he's convicted me and I've rejected him. And I know that that's a dangerous thing to do. And today, I'm ready to give my life to him. That's where you're at then I want to encourage you to pray this prayer to him right now. Dear Jesus, I come to you this morning humbly acknowledging that I am flawed. I'm a sinner. I put myself on the throne. Thought I knew more than you did. Forgive me. Tired of living that way. Jesus, I know you're real. And today in faith, I'm going to trust you to save me. In faith, I believe you died on the cross and rose from the grave so I could be forgiven. Save me. Make me new. Give me the power to live for you. Thank you for hearing my prayer.